Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, as usual, a couple of quick things to mention before we get into the main meat of this month's podcast. Uh, the first one is uh, just a quick discussion on podcast length. Um, of course, as some of you will be aware, they've been getting progressively longer uh, in recent months, and that's because you know we've added in the question answer session, and you know we've been exploring issues in a little bit more depth. So I've been asking for people's opinions on the length of the podcast, and the general consensus seems to be that uh, yeah, we like the information, but we like it when they're short as well. <laughs> Um, uh, most people preferring the uh, half an hour length um, podcast. So what I'm going to try and do, this this is my uh, grand plan, if you like, is in this podcast, we haven't got any questions and answers. But what I'll probably do is I'll do dedicated Q&A podcasts as like bonus podcasts on a, a more uh, frequent basis. So that way you don't lose any of the content. You get a podcast a little bit more regular. And each individual podcast is of a, a more uh, manageable and digestible length. So it's kind of like a compromise that hopefully um, everybody will, will, will win with. Um, so I hope that's that's, that's okay. Um, that leads me to the next thing is obviously last month we started mentioning that if you like these podcasts, you like what we do with the website, um, and if you want to support us, uh, in, aside from obviously buying the books, the DVDs, attending the seminars, all that's obviously great. Um, but if you want to give it a direct uh, donation to help all the kind of free stuff we do, you can obviously do that via the uh, the shopping side of the website. And thanks to everybody who's done that. I, I really appreciate it. Because what, what I'm hoping is, um, as I've said before, you know, these podcasts are always going to be free. I have no intention whatsoever of charging for them. Uh, and while the free to you know, and the website as well. We have free access to that, and you know, free magazines we do, and whatever else. So, free newsletters, all, all that free stuff. I want it to remain free because it's important to me that you know, if people find the information useful, then I want to give them that information so that um, they could find. Uh, um, value in it and hopefully get some use from it so in the past the way it's always worked is that the, the books and the dvds and things that the money that we get from those has uh, provided enough uh, money to obviously keep the whole thing going and enable us to provide all this free material for you as well because although it's all free to consume it's not free to produce you know there's this time and cost involved with that um, but what i'm hoping is it, it, the donation thing seems to have got off to a relatively um, a good start and if that continues of course that that means that it frees me up because i don't need to be thinking about okay i need to do the next thing or the other thing or whatever else in order to make sure i've got money to provide for the family and things uh, the donations mean that I, I, it gives me a little bit more time to say okay you know i've got enough donations there to pay for whatever a couple of days work i can spend a couple of days providing something free on the site um you know so i'm hoping eventually to be able to put a lot more video up there and everything else you know to give a lot away but in order to do that you know i, I need to be able to finance that because like everybody else i've got bills to pay so for those that are um have, have donated that's really great of you because again it, it keeps the whole thing rolling along and hopefully um if it if it takes off you should start to see more and more free content being provided by and uh, via the site and things as well so that's 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 great so yes uh, the next uh, little bit of news then so thanks to everyone who, who has donated and uh, you can check that out if that's something you want to do um, so the next one is just to mention that myself and uh, mike liptrot at the end of this month are um doing our uh, 
weekend long course again they've been very popular in, in previous years uh, Mike's obviously one of the UK's leading uh, judo coaches so uh, we, we get together we, we do a seminar where we cover various things um, we do it over the full weekend I'm going to be giving some uh, talks and so does Mike's it's not just physical training as well or technical training there's also um, lectures and things included as well so this time Mike's going to be covering some of the key principles associated with uh, ensuring your grappling training, your throwing training, your groundwork is practical and functional. And I'm going to be looking at things like, you know, obviously doing some counter application, some impact work, some stuff on uh, uh, multiple opponents. And I'm going to be giving a lecture on the uh, the Marshall map that uh, some of you may have uh, heard that uh, podcast. So we're going to go through that in a bit of detail. So uh, all the details there, you'll find that on the uh, the website. If you go to the news section, you, you'll, you'll find that there. So look forward to seeing you, uh, some of you there and the final thing of this uh, introduction is just um uh, just a basically you know in, in over the last year or so i've finally got round to embracing social media um so i've been hopefully quite prolific on twitter i try and get some new information for you up on uh, facebook every day as well the tweets that are sent to me by the way um during uk daylight hours at least uh, come direct uh, to my mobile phone so you know what you want to tweet me it literally lands wherever i am in the world it, it'll get to me um so i'm trying to make myself more accessible via the the social media and obviously i've still got you know quite a presence on the website and the forum and things um because i, I want to keep that connection with everybody and i want to be accessible to everybody but one thing is I've, I've almost become a victim of my own success really because the, the site has become so popular uh one thing that's been uh, very difficult to keep on top of has been the amount of emails I receive um, on a daily basis. I, I, I probably get about four hours worth a day. Um, now, while it's important, you know, and I want to kind of respond to everybody and I don't like to leave it too long, it, it's quite frankly, it's getting untenable to keep up. I, I can't provide that kind of free uh, one-to-one service for, for, for everybody. So um, by all means, you know, I, I don't stop emailing me. If you've got any questions and stuff, then I'm always there. But it would really help me if people would keep their emails brief and to the point so I can give you a brief and to the point answer back. And a lot of the time, what I find myself doing is just telling people, you know, the, the answer to your question can be found in this podcast or this article so we have a search function on the website as well so that would be a, a good place to uh, to start um and, and also you know i'm very accessible via uh, facebook and twitter and things like that as well and they're, they're easier ways uh, for me to to, uh, to communicate with people and the great thing about that is as well if i answer any questions via those media then it doesn't just benefit the person who asked it everyone else can see see it too so um i, I just um, i would just ask for a little bit of understanding with regard to the email situation and if you, if you want to get in touch that, that that's great but it would really help me if people would look at the website first and and the um uh the social media first because it, it's getting to the point where i simply can't keep on top of them all and i don't want to be that guy who you emailed and never ever got back to you but people need to appreciate the number of, of emails I'm getting and because I'm spending so much time on them it's stopping me from moving forwards other projects which will you know benefit everybody not just the uh, 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 the individuals who um, have, have, have sent that specific email so um, so yeah that's for your understanding with that and if you can't help me with that that'll be that would be um, spot on okay so I think that's enough rambling I think that's we've covered those key points there so th- th- let's get into the uh, podcast proper where we're going to be looking at the principles of arm locks 
always very important to understand the principles. Techniques are limited. Principles are infinite. Um, one of the problems that I often see when people are looking at cutter applications is the fail to grasp that it's all about principles. So the C cutter is a collection of techniques. The, 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 then they say, okay, but in a real fight, things are so varied. You'd be very lucky to find that specific technique in the mess of a real fight. Therefore, cutter's pointless. And the reason is they don't understand what cutter's all about. Cutter's not about technique. It's about using combative technique to show your principle. Uh, and once you get the principle intuitively understood through the study of that combative technique, you'll be very adaptable and versatile. And all the old masters kind of talked about that. So I thought what we'd do for this podcast is look at some uh, core principles associated with uh, with joint locking, which hopefully will give you something to think about in your practice and uh, um, help you to understand joint locks in general and uh, kata too. Okay, so um, thank you very much for uh, <laughs> listening to this long introduction. And now let's get straight into the podcast proper. Arm locks are found in most of the martial arts. However, the various systems emphasize arm locks to differing degrees. In some systems and schools, a wide variety of arm locks are regularly practiced, whereas in others, they may only include a small number of arm locks in their training. There are only a limited number of ways to lock the joints of the arm, and therefore the arm locks of all martial arts will have a great deal in common. The various systems emphasize certain arm locks over others, have varying degrees of sophistication, and all have subtly different ways of applying arm locks. However, the core principles that we'll be looking at in uh, this podcast are common. Now, the arm is made up of three main joints, the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist. And throughout this podcast, we'll essentially be looking at the various ways in which these weaknesses uh, associated with these three joints can be exploited. Now, the structure of these joints is common to all human beings, and therefore the weaknesses that we wish to exploit are also common. However, the methods used to exploit these weaknesses will vary according to the environment in which the arm lock is being used. In sporting martial arts, arm locks are generally applied in order to get the opponent to tap out, and you're facing a skilled opponent with a very similar skill set to your own. This means that you will need to be able to apply arm locks in a skillful and subtle way if they're not going to be counted. You can only apply techniques that are permitted by the rules in a way that is permitted by the rules. The fight is guaranteed to stay one-on-one and take place on a matted area. You'll know about the fight weeks in advance and you will have prepared accordingly. All of the above will affect the way in which arm locks are applied in a sporting environment. In a civilian altercation or self-protection, your first option will be to flee as opposed to fight for a submission or a tap-out. If physical conflict uh, can't be avoided, then your aim is to weaken or stun your assailant so that you can run away. An assailant in a self-protection situation is extremely unlikely to be a trained competitor. This lack of formal training makes them no less dangerous as they can have plenty of real-life experience. Um, The lack of formal training and the lack of rules means that counters, feints, etc. become an irrelevance as simple directness becomes the order of the day. You can use a wider range of methods because none are prohibited by the rulebook. Um, and there's also no guarantee that the fight will remain one-on-one. And then strategies that are highly effective in the competitive arena uh, can become extremely dangerous outside that arena. So, for example, you know, deliberately seeking and maintaining a ground fight. Um, some principles are always constant. You know, so, for example, all arm locks require good leverage regardless of the environment. But it's important that you understand which environment you are training for and hence which techniques and methods are appropriate. 
in this look at the principles of arm lock, we will be focusing on their use in the civilian environment. Um, there are a great many additional skills that the competitive martial artist needs that those who don't enter such tournaments do not need. It should also be understood that defeating a highly trained athlete who has a wide knowledge of combative methods and ranges requires a skill level way in excess of the skills needed for self-defense. Um, additionally, many of the methods used in the competitive martial arts environment are not appropriate for use outside that environment. Now, for example, sometimes they're just way too complex. A highly trained and gifted athlete may be able to make just about any technique work, but those who are left gifted should stick to techniques that are simpler and more direct. From the outset, it's important to understand that in self-protection, arm locks are definitely not primary techniques, and they'll fall firmly into the category of support techniques. Because arm locks are grappling techniques, they require you to hold on to your opponent, they should generally be avoided if at all possible. Your aim should always be to run away the instant you are able to do so. If you and your enemy have latched onto one another, it's no longer possible to run away. In self-protection situations, striking is generally the preferred method. You should strike the opponent, ideally preemptively during the dialogue stages of an altercation, and then flee while they're stunned. You should never actively seek to grapple with your assailant. That said, if your initial strikes are unsuccessful, there's a strong chance that the opponent will grab you. Some martial arts instructors recommend breaking the opponent's grip and then fleeing. You know, and that's great, but unfortunately it's not always that simple. If effective and pragmatic self-protection skills are your aim, you need to possess fundamental grappling skills in order to back up your striking as well as in order to facilitate those escapes. It needs practice, you can't just pay it lip service. Uh, once a fight hits close range, striking should remain the preferred option. So long as you've trained to develop sufficient impact, striking is always direct and very immediate. A solid strike will weaken or incapacitate an opponent and will give you the opportunity to flee. Grappling techniques generally take longer to apply and require you to remain in uh, close proximity to your enemies. It is for this reason that striking should be the primary method for self-protection. However, you must understand that striking from outside grappling range and from within grappling range are two very different skills. It's a mistake to assume that skill at one distance will automatically lead to skill at another. You need to ensure that you practice striking from within a clinch and that you possess the basic grappling skills needed to create opportunities for your strikes while fighting at close range. In addition to striking, you can also use very simple and direct grappling techniques when the fight goes to close range. Methods such as seizing the testicles, attacking the eyes and biting are you know, pretty effective and are very easy to apply. Um, they can also cause great harm, of course, and hence you have a legal and moral obligation to ensure that you know, you're using an appropriate amount of force in the circumstances. But such simple techniques, very easy to apply, very low skill, and can help facilitate escape and opening up strikes. Not always fight um, finishes on their own, but they can certainly help move the fight in that direction. So the hierarchy, as we've examined it so far, has been totally avoid the situation. If you can't do that, then run away. If you can't do that, verbally, uh, verbally dis, uh, diffuse the situation or dissuade. Um, if you can't do that, then preemptively strike the assailant during the dialogue stages and then instantly flee. We then strike the opponent until the opportunity to flee is available if we couldn't um, escape and we want to avoid latching onto the opponent. And then we strike the opponent from within the clinch to use, uh, and use simple and direct grappling techniques if that fails. Now, if, while still fighting from the clinch, the opportunity for a more formal grappling technique should present itself, and fleeing is not possible or appropriate, then, you know, by all means, take it. Uh, the opponent may end up perfectly positioned for a lock, a throw, a choke, or a strangle, and you could exploit that opportunity and apply that technique. 
However, it's really important to understand that you should never be looking for such techniques in the first instance. Uh, take them if they're presented, but be sure to give striking and the simple and direct methods priority. Um, Gichi Funakoshi talked about this in um, Karate Do Kyohan, uh, where he said uh, he explained that it was important to understand that karate contained locks and throws, but then he went on to say that we should never forget that the essence of karate was found in a single thrust or kick and great care must be taken not to be defeated by being overly concerned with applying a throw or a joint punishment hold. Um, so Funakoshi is quite clear on this, you know, at striking is the primary method for self-defence and, and for, for karate, and grappling being um, support skills. We don't go looking for them in the first instance. So throws, locks, chokes, etc. are very much support techniques. The primary methods are striking and the very simple techniques we've already discussed. However, the support methods are still very much a vital part of the whole. You need to ensure you're familiar with all the various methods. After all, you know, a chain's only as strong as its weakest link. Uh, before I go on to discuss um, some specific issues surrounding arm locks, I'd qu quite a, like to quickly touch on the role of uh, ground fighting. The ground is not somewhere you want to be in a real fight. Becoming involved in a ground fight makes it much harder to escape due to your vastly reduced mobility. You're also very vulnerable to the kicks of your opponent's accomplices whilst on the floor. And in today's society, if their fights are rarely one-on-one -on -one for any length of time, even spectators to the fight may decide to get involved if they feel they can get away with a free shot. Um, indeed, we, know we had an instance of that locally in the news recently, where um, a gentleman was knocked the floor by someone else, and a guy who had no involvement with the situation whatsoever ran across and, and, and put the boot in. Um, it, it does happen. For whatever reason, it does happen. Now, if you're in an isolated area with no chance of immediate escape and you're a good ground fighter, then theoretically it could be argued that opting for a ground fight might be a workable strategy. However, in the vast majority of situations, you don't want to go to the ground. Now, despite the desire not to go to the ground, you must appreciate that real fights can end up there, and therefore you definitely need to possess uh, some ground fighting skills. If you should end up on the ground, your immediate aim should be to get back to your feet. And there's some advice on how to do that in my Throws for Strikers book. Although it's unlikely to be a preferred option, the opponent may present you with the opportunity for an arm lock during a ground fight. Um, theoretically, should it be safe and appropriate to do so, e no chance of a third party getting involved, you may decide to exploit that opportunity. However, it must be understood that in a civilian environment, ground fighting arm locks do not play anything like the same role they do in the sporting environment. You must never forget that getting to your feet is always the key strategy if you should find yourself on the ground. In a self-protection situation, you must never actively go to the ground in search of an arm lock. Okay, so having discussed quickly where you would consider applying arm locks, we shall now move on to discuss what arm locks should be used for. In competitive martial arts, arm locks are primarily used to get the opponent to tap out and hence forfeit the match. In a self-protection situation, arm locks um, could never be used in that way. The opponent may feign defeat or compliance only to continue their assault the instant the lock is released. You know, you're not ending the situation there and you're not getting away from it either. Arm locks are also very unlikely to work uh, when used as a form of pain compliance in order to be able to restrain an assailant. Now, you may be able to momentarily control their motion, but there's no chance of you restraining an assail uh, assailant for any significant length of time on your own. To effectively restrain a violent individual, you would need around four or five people to have a good chance of success. In live situations, arm locks only have two functions. They are either used to injure the joint or to position the opponent for a following technique, you know, most often a strike. Using arm locks to injure joints can give you an advantage as the opponent will be unable to use the arm in question. Uh, however, it's one thing to get a practice partner to tap out, but it takes a whole different mindset to actually snap or dislocate a joint. 
You should also keep in mind that in a real fight, your opponent's system will be flooded with adrenaline and hence their pain threshold will be much higher than a partner's in the dojo. In a real fight, in addition to the effects of adrenaline, your assailant may also be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. This can further increase their pain threshold. It should therefore be understood that a broken joint may not be a fight stopper. Despite the, the fact that the opponent will have difficulty using the injured joint, you know, if it's mechanically busted, then it, you won't be able to use it. But they may still try and fight on as if nothing's happened. Now, I'm, I'm sure we all know people, perhaps you've even done it yourself, who've shrugged off injuries as nothing significant, only to realise later on that they're more significant than the first thought. But I've done that myself, and trained, I've broken bones and carried on, only later on to find out that they were broken at the time. It just felt uncomfortable. Um, now, I know of people who have, have snapped joints in real situations as well, only for it to have little effect in dampening their enemy's desire to continue fighting. Uh, I know of one instance where a guy snapped the guy's arm completely back the, the wrong way and the guy just carried on swinging that arm as, on him as if nothing had happened. Um, so, you know, we need need to bear that in mind that, you know, there may well not be fight stoppers in the way that unconsciousness or escape can be a, um, a fight stopper. Now, the second function of arm locks is to position the opponent for following techniques. As a lock is applied, the opponent will instinctively move away from the pain caused by the lock in order to protect their joints. This instinctive action always takes place without the conscious thought of the opponent. You know, just like when you snatch away uh, your hand from something hot. You know, so arm locks can be used, uh, when applied correctly, to exploit this instinctive action. Now I'd now like to quickly mention uh, the differing styles of martial arts and the roles arm locks play within them. Uh, many arm locks are regularly practiced in grappling systems such as judo and jiu-jitsu. However, arm locks are not techniques that most martial artists would associate with karate, taekwondo, etc. Although probably not the case for those listening to this, because you're probably a, a broader kind of practitioner of the martial arts, but I think that's, that's a fair comment overall. Now, nowadays, of course, more and more martial artists understand that you need to be competent at all ranges of combat, to, to varying degrees, of course. You know, you don't need to be brilliant at everything, but I think you need to you know, have all bases covered, depending on the environment you're primarily training for, you know. And this fact, you know, this need for a holistic, broad-based training was fully understood by the, uh, the martial artists of the past. The original versions of most systems were much broader in their scope than the specialised systems we have, uh, have today. The grappling arts, uh, inverted commas, included fundamental striking uh, skills on their curricula, just as the striking arts included fundamental uh, grappling skills on theirs. It's only in comparatively recent times that arts have narrowed their focus and became only about one specific range or specific skill. Now, if you practice a grappling art, then you're probably already familiar with arm locks and the methodology. And for those who practice a modern striking art or a modern version of an older system, uh, you may not presently include arm locks in your practice. However, if you examine the applications of you know, the traditional katas or forms within your system, you're almost sure to find arm locks. The forms are, after all, a record of the older versions of your system and you will find within the forms all the principles that we're going to be discussing. Regardless of which art you practice, all arm locks have a common set of core principles. It's these common core principles that I'd now like to move on to examine. Having quickly covered some of the issues surrounding arm locks, I'd now like to get into a discussion on the uh, core principles. Um, and there's a number of reasons why it's important that you have an understanding of the underlying principles of arm locks. Firstly, an understanding of the underlying principles will ensure that your techniques are applied as effectively and as efficiently as possible. You know, they're, they're applied in line with these principles. Secondly, a knowledge of principles will allow you to adapt techniques in line with the underlying principles, 
relative to the exact situation at hand, and you know, therefore you'll be a more versatile martial artist. If you intuitively get these principles, you can vary and adapt the situation quite freely while never violating or moving away from those principles. Thirdly, if you understand the principles upon which techniques rest, you will find it easier to learn new techniques. On the surface, a new technique may appear quite different to those already in your repertoire, but it will be undoubtedly be based on the exact same principles with which you're already familiar. You will also find it easier to adapt methods from other arts into your own training for the same reason, if you understand these core principles, because the principles are beyond art. You know. Finally, knowledge of these principles will enable you to recognise them in your kata. Therefore, your understanding of kata um, will be enhanced. You'll recognise these principles in action within them. Now, principles are always more important than the techniques that they produce. Principles can be applied in an infinite number of ways, whereas techniques are limited to specific situations. It is simply impossible to try and learn a technique for every single specific situation. Because there are an infinite number of possible situations, you'd need to learn an infinite number of techniques. It's just not workable. Now, as an analogy that works for me, as someone who spent many years working as an electrician, I've worked on many vastly differing uh, electrical systems, from simple light switches to some of the most advanced computer control systems in Europe. Although these systems may be different, they're all based on the fundamental nature of electricity and the laws that govern its behaviour, Ohm's laws, Kirchhoff's laws, and so on. As an electrician, and someone who trained other electricians, I appreciated that the key thing to understand are the principles of electricity. That way, we effectively understand all electrical systems. Even if we've never worked on a specific system before, we would still be able to maintain and fix it and look after it effectively, as long as we understood the principles of electricity upon which it's based. As martial artists, we should also endeavour to understand the core principles for similar reasons. If we come across a situation with which we're previously unfamiliar, we'll still know what to, uh, what to do, so long as we understand the principles. Uh, we'll now move on to look at some of the key principles associated with arm locks. When practicing arm locks in training, I suggest that you closely examine how the techniques covered make use of these core principles. You will find that these concepts seem less abstract when you see them in action. In fact, the only way to gain a worthwhile understanding of these concepts is to put them into action. Uh, listening to me talk about the principles of arm locks will hopefully increase your understanding of them. However, listening alone will only produce an intellectual understanding. Uh, we've talked about that in the Knowledge is Power podcast. I think it's something martial artists are sometimes bad for, that they believe uh, an intellectual understanding to be sufficient, and it isn't. As martial artists, what we require is an intuitive and deep understanding of these principles. So we're able to apply them freely. So it's not intellectual understanding we want. It's, it's kind of an intuitive understanding. We just, we just, we just get it. We can just uh, work in accordance with them. So the first principle, okay? So the first one we're going to look at is push-pull. Now this principle refers to the two-way motion associated with most joint locks. Part of the lock will pull the opponent's limb and another part will push. This will produce a greater force on the opponent's joint than either pulling or pushing alone. Um, now, a good analogy for this kind of motion is that of turning the steering wheel on a car. One hand pushes upwards while the other side of the wheel pulls down. Now, to give a combative analogy, suppose I seize the opponent's wrist with one hand and the forearm of my other arm is placed just above the opponent's elbow. That's like standard armbar. Um, from here, I would straighten and hyperextend the enemy's elbow joint most effectively by pulling on the opponent's wrist as my forearm pushes against the opponent's elbow. Both the push and the pull would help to hyperextend the opponent's arm, and when applied simultaneously, their individual effects are multiplied. 
The majority of arm locks make use of the push-pull principle, and hence it's important to become familiar with it and its applications. Second principle is good leverage. When locking an opponent's joints, it's important that you position yourself in a way that gives you the greatest possible leverage. This will maximise the effect of the lock and reduce the amount of strength needed to apply it. The key things that uh, will ensure good leverage are the positioning of the fulcrum, or the, the pivot point, and the length of the lever. So anyone who's ever used a crowbar fully understand this principle. The closer the end of the crowbar, a fulcrum, is to the item being forced, e.g. the nails in a floorboard or whatever, the greater the effect. Also, the longer the handle of the crowbar, the greater the effect will be. The exact same laws of physics apply to joint locks. So, for example, when applying a straight arm lock, the fulcrum should be positioned just above the elbow, while the force is applied as near to the opponent's wrist as possible. Um, force is also frequently applied directly at the fulcrum point in order to make use of push-pull. In this way, we are not only getting the direct force acting on the elbow joint and or fulcrum, but the force being applied at the wrist will also uh, act on the joint and is, is magnified by the levering effects of the arm. So you may, may sound complex, but you know this. If you, if you use a, um, a short-handled spanner to undo a bolt, it's harder than if you use a long-handled span, uh, spanner. So same when you put an arm locks on. The further away from the fulcrum point you can grab, the greater leverage you can get. Now, on almost all straight arm locks, you'll see that a body part is almost uh, always positioned above the opponent's elbow to act as this fulcrum point. Um, and, you know, again, the nearer it is to the elbow joint, the better as well. You know, the, you will get good leverage by carefully positioning that fulcrum. Um, and you'll also notice how the force is always applied near the wrist. You know, if it was gripped halfway down the forearm, it won't be as effective. But the reason for this is it gives a longer lever and ensures that the force is magnified as much as possible. If I were to move up the forearm towards the elbow, the lever would effectively be shorter, and hence the magnifying effect would not be as great. You know, it's vital to keep the, um, the lever as long as possible. And the same principle applies when the uh, arm is bent. For uh, bent arm locks, normally where you're attacking the shoulder, you'll observe that the force is again applied near the wrist, so that the forearm acts as a lever. And again, that's very much like the turning of the spanner we just discussed. The, the greater the length of the spanner handle, the less rotational force is required to move the bolt. Uh, so the next principle is mechanical advantage. Now, mechanical advantage refers to positioning yourself so that you are in a stronger position than your opponent. Um, shifting your body weight is one way in which a mechanical advantage can be gained. Uh, whenever you see a skillfully applied arm lock, notice how the dropping, lifting and turning of the body always plays a key part in the application of that lock. If you were to try and apply the technique using the strength of the arms alone, as, as some do, your opponent would have a relatively easy time resisting the lock. However, when the body weight is shifted correctly, your body weight will be added to the technique. Um, if your techniques make use of body weight, even with opponents who are physically stronger than yourself, you'll find your techniques are difficult to resist. A key part in ensuring that you transfer your weight effectively is correct posture, and cataractics, of course, can be a big help with that. Uh, you know, you can see the um, My Stance on Stances podcast for a greater, um, more in-depth discussion on that. Another way to gain mechanical advantage is to correctly position your limbs. Uh, in addition to the correct positioning of the fulcrum and the lever that we've talked about um, a few moments ago, it's also important to ensure that your limbs are positioned in other ways that make your techniques as strong as possible. Uh, one example is to keep your hands as close to your body as the technique in question allows. Your muscles are effectively at the strongest when your limbs are close to your body. Additionally, the closer your hands are to your body, the easier it is to transfer the effects of your body motion into the opponent. Conversely, if the opponent's arms are away from your body, you will have less control over them. 
Now, as a simple experiment to prove this, you know, if it's, if it's sounding a little bit abstract to you, you can extend one of your arms um, so that it's within a foot of your partner's chest. So your partner stands opposite you, you stick your arm out. Uh, and then try to keep your arm totally still as your opponent pushes on your hand in various directions. Now, you'll find that your partner will have little trouble moving the hand. Um, now, keep your bodies in the same position and the same distance apart, but move your arm closer to your body. Your partner should then reach forward and try to move your hand. And, you'll, of course, you'll notice how it's much easier to resist your partner's attempts to move your hand the closer your hand gets to you. Therefore, one way we can gain mechanical advantage is by moving the opponent's limbs away from them whilst keeping our own arms close to our body. And you see that all the time in kata, you know, with the hikate or the arm across the chest. We see locks being applied with the arms actually touching your own body. Uh, and the reason for that is it gives you that mechanical advantage. You know, that's one of the main reasons for the, the hand on the hip within kata. Um, now, you can also gain mechanical advantage on some techniques by positioning your body at an angle to the opponent. And this is one reason why we see many techniques performed at 45 degrees and 90 degrees in kata. Um, obviously, as I'm sure you know, the angle in the kata represents the angle you should be in relation to your opponent. Now, if you're at an angle to the enemy, um, this exploits the fact that the mechanical and muscular uh, linkages of the arms and torso are most efficient when pushing straight forwards or pulling straight backwards. Uh, you'll know from your own experience that you can't push the side with as much force as you can to the front. Likewise, you can't pull inwards from the side as strongly as you can towards, uh, towards the back. Um, for many locks, uh, you'll notice how the opponent's arms are frequently positioned at an angle to their torso while they're still in line with yours. So still directly in front of you, but you've moved so the opponent's arm is kind of pulled out of line from, from their perspective. And this again will give you a mechanical advantage. Uh, another principle we have is confusion and distraction. Um, it's important to get the correct handle on this one because it can sometimes be overemphasized or misunderstood. Um, but I'm sure you'd agree, if an opponent's fully aware that a specific technique is being applied, they're in a better position to resist and counter that technique. Uh, it's a general truth that the techniques that the opponent doesn't see coming are the ones that work the best. Uh, whenever the opponent is confused, i.e. reeling from the effects of a blow, or distracted, so if I've been overly focused on one aspect or issue and hence vulnerable in other ways, um, you should attempt to exploit that opponent's uh, weakened mental state. Often confusion and distraction will be side effects of other techniques. So, for example, you deliver a hard strike to the opponent's jaw in an attempt to knock him out. Uh, the opponent is still on the feet, but the blow has interfered with their mental function. If running away is not an immediate option, you could exploit the opponent's confused mental state by rapidly applying an appropriate technique. Now, it could be a lot, could be anything else. Um, if the situation has become a fight, you should always aim to defeat the opponent as quickly and directly as possible. Therefore, before we look in some of the ways in which confusion and distraction can be used in, in fight, it's important to understand that the principle of confusion and distraction must never get in the way of the, of the rapid and direct application of your techniques. Essentially, don't concentrate so much on distracting the opponent that you end up becoming distracted yourself, you know, by focusing on your distraction, as it were. Um, it's also important that you don't confuse simple distraction with feints or the provoking of trained responses. These are very different things, and the distinction, although very simple, is often not understood and perhaps warrants a, a dedicated podcast. Uh, as a quick aside, I'm, I'm going to do a podcast um, in the not-too-distant future on what are called the dangers of mono-context thinking, which is whereby you know people have experience of one given environment and then 
expound on the principles that work well in that environment to all the other environments. So, for example, someone's an effective competitive martial artist and then makes assumptions that what works well in that environment works well in self-defense or vice versa. You know, it can never divorce what works away from context. Um, and sometimes I think because a lot of people spend most of the time training with other martial artists and because they haven't got much real-life experience, they make an assumption that the things that work well when fighting their own kind also work well when uh, in self-defense situations. So, for example, you might use a feint to set a technique up, and that can work very well in a sparring situation where you're aware of the training the other guy's had, and you can exploit that training by using it against them. It works in that context. It doesn't have any relevance and doesn't work outside of that context. Um, so it's important to understand that. So when we're talking about confusion and distraction here, I'm not talking about feinting or setting them up or making them think you're going to do one thing when you're going to do something else. It's just, you know, simple, really basic things. So a simple way in which a principle of confusion and distraction can be used during a fight is something as simple as um, the immediate pushing of an opponent prior to a pull um, or vice versa. Because anybody, whether they're trained or not, is likely to resist the initial push by transferring the weight forwards and hence you're they are unwittingly aiding you to execute the following pull. Um, that's not exploiting trained responses, just that it's exploiting natural reactions. Uh, you can also use confusion and distraction by incorporating shouting, scratching, spitting, etc. into your techniques. These peripheral actions can distract the opponent and make it easy to apply any technique. But you must use these distractions in such a way that they don't delay or make uh, the actual technique any less direct. Another way in which confusion and distraction can be employed when applying arm locks, uh, well, all techniques really, but we are discussing arm locks, is the rapid progression from one technique to another. Uh, this prog uh, progression may have been intentional, or more likely, it will have been the result of the opponent thwarting the previous technique. So the opponent may have been able to resist a certain lock, but because they are now overly focused on avoiding a specific technique um, that you're trying to apply, they're distracted, they're focusing on avoiding that. So hence the vulnerable, if you were to quickly switch to another technique. Um, now, this uh, being able to switch from one technique to another and maintain your advantage, um, we need to employ the principle of continuous control in order to do that. So the next principle is continuous control. So if an arm lock uh, is to be successful, you will need to ensure that you have gained control over the opponent. For many techniques, controlling the arm alone is not sufficient. You must ensure that you have control over the opponent's entire body. And there are essentially two ways to gain control over the opponent's body when fighting. Um, we can split that into direct control and indirect control. Um, direct control refers to uh, the direct holding and securing of the opponent's body so that their movement is limited. So, for example, if I were to kneel on a flawed opponent, my knee is providing direct control over my opponent's body. Placing the legs around or over the opponent will also provide me with direct control when fighting on the floor. Um, the arm itself can be directly controlled through grabbing, sticking, or both. So grabbing is self-explanatory, whereas sticking is simply the direct control of the opponent's limbs without actually seizing them, through a combination of constant contact, pressure, and friction. And your bunk-eye drills will, you know, they give you those skills. So for the purposes of this discussion, indirect control refers to controlling the opponent's body through the application of an arm lock. Uh, the human body is designed to instinctively avoid injury. Uh, E.g., if you were to, in danger of being burnt, you will involuntarily move away from the source of the heat before the brain has even consciously registered that heat. In a similar way, when a joint lock is applied, the body will instinctively try to move away from the source of pain. A good number of arm locks will cause the opponent to drop to their knees or onto the floor, and in these instances, the opponent has not been thrown as such. 
The stimulus was provided and the opponent involuntarily threw themselves to the floor in order to avoid uh, damage to the, uh, the joint under attack. So that, using those actions in that way would be indirect control. Um, so previously I referred to the two functions of arm locks and they were to damage the joint and to gain control of the opponent's motion. Uh, because this uh, subconscious programming to move away from the source of pain is uh, common to all healthy human beings, it can be used to predict an opponent's most likely movement in order to enhance the accuracy of any following strikes. And that's a principle we see constantly enacted through uh, through the various catedrals. So the next pr principle, it should be self-evident, but uh, is to attack the weaknesses of the joints. Um, in order, so we need to be aware of what those weaknesses are. In order to lock a joint effectively, you need to be aware of the structure of the joint and how to exploit any weakness that joint has. Now, it's not necessary to have the detailed knowledge of a physician in order to effectively apply arm locks. The martial artist need only be aware of the basic structure and range of motion that each joint has. This knowledge is uh, useless uh, if your understanding is purely intellectual, of course. To be able to apply this knowledge in a fight, your understanding of these weaknesses needs to progress to be uh, intuitive. So in this podcast, we are dealing with locks that attack the wrists, the elbows and the shoulder joints. Although the joints are now going to be discussed separately, it's important to understand that many arm locks make use of the interaction between the joints. For example, some wrist locks require the elbow to be bent in order to increase the effect of the lock by limiting the rotation of the shoulder. Um, and exploiting the limitation of the elbow joint by the forearm, uh, the bones of the forearm coming together. So, um, although listening to the following information will hopefully help, the best way to understand these interactions and limitations is through the practice of the techniques that exploit them. So, next time you're practicing your arm locks, have a little think about these uh, these principles. So, let's look at the you know the structure and weakness of each joint. So, the first one is the wrist. The wrist is made up of two rows of bones, or uh, carpal bones, and it's held together by four ligaments. The wrist joint itself is the connection of the radius to the first row of small bones. The wrist joint is very mobile and can move around 130 degrees up and down and about 60 degrees side to side, you know, depending on the individual, of course. The wrist joint is attacked by moving the hand or, or forearm outside this permitted range of motion. And the wrist is relatively small and, and, and weak and as such is, is easy to damage. However, because the joint is small, small movements are required to manipulate it. During a live fight, the chemicals released into the bloodstream can vastly reduce your fine motor skills. It's for this reason that wrist locks are nowhere near as effective as they can appear during relaxed and compliant practice. The wrist is sometimes bent so that the hand can be used as a lever in order to twist the bones of the forearm together, the ulnar and the radius. And in these instances, it's the structure of the elbow joint that is mainly under attack. However, because it is the wrist that is being manipulated, such techniques are most often classified as wrist locks. So if you think of it like your S-lock or your center lock, you know, the pain is actually felt in the forearm. And it's the limitations of the elbow joint that are causing that. But we're using the, the, the wrist kind of as a lever there, you know. So um, as I say, it's their interaction of the joints that tends to um, be the, the, the key thing. And it is important to understand how these, uh, these all interact and, and, and come together. So let's look at this, the structure of the elbow. So the elbow is made up of three joints between the humerus, the ulnar, and the radius bones. Uh, these joints um, are held together by four main ligaments. The joint of the ulnar and humerus enables the uh, arm to bend and straighten. Um, and the elbow is capable of bending through an angle of, say, around 140 degrees. But again, this varies from person to person. Uh, the structure of the elbow joint does not un normally allow the forearm to move further back once the arm is straight, although some individuals do have a slightly greater range of motion, as we, as we just mentioned. 
it's this limitation of the elbow joint that's most frequently attacked on straight arm locks. You know, once it's straight, it can't get any straighter. Uh, the joint of the ulna and the radius, together with the joint of the radius and the humerus, allows the forearm to rotate around 180 degrees. Uh, beyond this point, the bones of the ulna and the radius come together and prevent any further movement. And this lim limitation, uh, as we discussed, is most often attacked by using the opponent's hand as a lever in order to twist the, uh, the bones together. The shoulder joint. Well, the shoulder joint has the greatest range of motion of all the joints of the human body. The shoulder joint is a ball and socket joint. Uh, the ball is the large head of the humerus bone, and the socket is the shallow cavity of the shoulder blade. The ball is larger than the socket, and only a small part of the ball is enclosed by the joint. Uh, the joint is kept together by three main uh, ligaments, the, the capsula, carcohumeral, and the glenoid. Um, now the shoulders are extremely mobile, very unstable joints, and are hence quite susceptible to injury. The shoulder joint allows movement in all directions. However, the most frequently exploited limitation is the clockwise and anti-clockwise rotation of the upper arm. Uh, while the exact range of motion again varies from person to person, there comes a point in both directions of rotation where the humerus can't rotate, or the upper arm, the humerus the upper arm can't rotate any further. So many of the arm locks which attack the shoulder joint attempt to twist the humerus beyond the range of motion permitted by the structure of the joint in order to cause pain, to do damage uh, to the related ligaments and nerves, and to control the opponent's uh, body. Um, another limitation of the, sh uh, the shoulder frequently attacked is the backward motion of the humerus. Um, it's, you know, it's limited. Of the locks where the opponent's arm is bent up the back, so you know, hammer locks and things like that, it is this limitation that is under attack. By moving the humerus further backward than the structure of the joint allows, we can damage the shoulder joint. So that, that concludes our look at the key principles associated with arm locks. You know, and to reiterate what was said earlier, it's an intuitive understanding of these principles that's needed if you're going to be able to uh, use arm locks effectively and efficiently in live combat. So, you know, by all means, just study these principles and see how they apply to the locks that you're doing. But don't be too concerned if these concepts still seem a little abstract at first. Practicing the arm locks themselves will help you to understand these principles. After all, as martial artists, it's a practical understanding and a working knowledge that we require, not an academic understanding. And it should, you know, of course, also be remembered that the techniques are nothing more than the, uh, the principles in action. As uh, Gichin Funakoshi said, he said, once you master one technique, you will realize its close relationship to all other techniques. And that relationship that he's talking about are the principles themselves. It's the principles that, uh, that connect them. So we've, we've quickly looked at a number of arm locking principles there. We looked at push-pull, good leverage, mechanical advantage, confusion and distraction, continuous control, and attacking the weakness of the joints. To make good use of these principles, what you need to do is make sure you, that you understand them. Go back, practicing your arm locks, look for these principles in action, and make sure that your techniques have been applied in accordance with them. Well, that concludes this month's podcast. I uh, hope you found that uh, of some interest and uh, of some value to you. As I say, no Q&A session uh, this month because I want to try and keep the length down a little bit. Uh, but I'll try and do a, a Q&A one for you between uh, this one and, and next month's uh, podcast as well. Uh, time permitting, I'll get to that. Uh, just one final thing to mention before we, we sign off as well is that uh, for our US uh, listeners, uh, I will be in the US uh, a couple of times uh, this year. 
Uh, first one is uh, in July, I'll be at Mark McYoung's uh, Animal List uh, Barbecue in uh, Colorado. That's a closed event uh, for members of the, the the Animal List. But I believe, you know, uh, Rory Miller's going to be there and Chris Wilder's going to be there and, and Mark and Helen's coming over with me. So we're really looking forward to, uh, to meeting everybody there. And I'll be doing a, a, a little bit of uh, teaching uh, while I'm there as well, of course. It'll be nice to see some of you at that. Uh, and the uh, open uh, session uh, as well, I've got one in uh, October. Uh, in the Missouri region uh, for a weekend on the 7th to the 9th uh, of October. If you go on the website, you can find uh, all the details of that one as well. So um, uh, uh, Eric's organising that one. I'm really looking forward to that. So it'll be a chance to kind of uh, do some in-depth teaching uh, in the US. So it'll be nice to meet some of you in, in person as well. So that, that'll be, be really good. So um, yeah, so just check out the website for those details and I'll, I'll be back with more information soon. Thanks once again for your support of these podcasts. Um, I really appreciate you listening in as I always say I do like putting them together uh, thanks to everyone who's made the donations in support of these podcasts that's wonderful uh, I appreciate times are hard you know and even if you wanted to donate you may not have the money but you can always help me out by uh, just telling other people about these podcasts and, uh, and letting other people know your classmates know uh, that all really helps as well because the aim is always to get the message out to uh, as many people as we're, we possibly can so uh, um, yeah you know, follow me on Facebook uh, keep uh, an eye on Twitter for me and uh, yeah I'll, I'll speak to you all soon and I'll be back with another podcast shortly okay take care bye-bye now <coughs> okay i'm gonna have to tell you this right the, the, the podcast finished there and it, just just to want to point this out to you you may have heard a little cough that's because a fly just flew straight into the back of my throat <laughs> and like a true pro <laughs> listen back to that and see if you can tell when it actually did it okay i, th- I thought i handled that well right up until the cough ah, mm. Okay, I'm going to have to go and get a drink. So, yeah, all right. (laughs) The things I do, suffering for my art. All right, okay, take care, everybody. I'm going to go and cough this thing up. Bye now.